What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brabble. Now get a Big Mac or Double Cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing BC Lions owner Amar Doman taking a shot at MLSC chairman Larry Tannenbaum. Annoying air horns in Montreal. Hall of Fame receiver Nick Lewis criticizing Rigers franchise quarterback Kogi Fajardo. Danny Machocha's non-answer regarding his team's penalty woes. And a pair of former CFL kickers duking it out for the job with the Dallas Cowboys. But first. Canadian quarterback Nathan Rourke had another signature performance in week nine when he completed 34 of 37 pass attempts for 477 yards, a single game record by a Canuck, and five touchdowns along with five carries for 25 yards and another major in a dominant win over the Edmonton Elks. He spoke to TSN 1050 this week, and when asked about his NFL potential in 2023, indicated that he's only focusing on the present right now, saying, quote, I don't want that to affect me mentally because it is something I've wanted a long time. I feel like it could be a distraction, close quote. Is Rourke going about handling this situation the right way? I I think that Nathan Rourke has handled everything this year. Brilliantly, um, with wisdom beyond his years. He's 24 years old. He's out there, more level-headed, calm, and collected than a lot of veteran quarterbacks that we see in the CFL. I mean, you can't argue with his play on the field. He's on pace to set a new all-time single-season passing touchdowns record. Some some person named Doug Flutie set that record a bunch of years ago. I don't. I had to look him up. I'd never heard of him. Um, he's also on pace to set a new single season record for completion percentage. He's in the eighties guys. Like, like you can't argue with the on field production. I looked it up as well. He's got three times as many touchdown passes as Bo Levi Mitchell three, three times. He's got 21. Bo's got seven. It's, it's insane what he's done on the field and off the field. I think the chances of Nathan work getting an NFL opportunity in 2023 are extremely high, basically regardless of what happens through the rest of this season. And I give him full credit because this is a player, if you remember historically, and JC, I know you'll touch on this as well, he's always been somewhat of an underdog, not even getting a full like a college scholarship to a D1 school coming out of high school. Yeah, he's gone the long, laborious route to get where he is. He had to go down to Alabama. He was the state MVP uh, at the high school level, but at the 5A level, which is a level below the top tier. And so nobody watered him. He had to go to JUCO before he could even get to the University of Ohio, but he's been dominant every single place he played. This quote is indicative of everything I've seen 
from Nathan Rourke so far. And as a guy who has to write off the media availabilities I attend, it's a little bit frustrating. You want him to go up on the podium and strut his stuff and be a little bit cocky, say something spicy like maybe a Bo Levi Mitchell would. You know, it's uh, it's strange to see a guy go up to the podium, talk about his teammates, talk about all the throws he missed in a game where he had three incompletions and five touchdowns. Like let yourself live a little bit, man. Like it's hard to get better than what you just did on the field. Nathan Rourke has been absolutely sensational thus far. And I've seen a lot of people online trying to, you know, wrap themselves in knots to figure out how does the CFL keep Nathan Rourke? Well, maybe the NFL isn't the best option for him. Maybe the NFL won't even want him for this reason or that or another thing. No, 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 no. Nathan Rourke is pretty much as good as gone after this year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. The CFL is a league that for much of its history was defined by the quarterbacks who played here and used it as a launch pad to bigger things. Okay. It was a star making league. We haven't seen something like that in more than a decade at this stage where a legitimate quarterback has emerged from the CFL and gone on to something great in the NFL. And I think quite frankly, that has hurt the league a little bit. It's hurt the reputation and you're starting to see more quarterbacks come out of these other spring leagues like the USFL, like the XFL and become legitimate NFL players. If Nathan Rourke can be that guy for the CFL, as much as I'd like to see him with the BC Lions for the next 10, 15 years, so I never have to talk about another losing season again. I mean, I I want to see him elevate our reputation as a league based on what he can do down south as well. I think we need to include Bolivar Mitchell in this conversation because if he felt like he was going to get a decent shot, he would have been in an NFL training camp. That's a fact. So even though it has been a while, JC, where somebody's actually done it, there were a bunch of teams after Mitchell, but he made a decision that he felt like was best for his future and also didn't want to get into the politics of the NFL. But that was Mitchell at an older age. This is a much different conversation with Rourke because he's 24 years old. And in my mind, because he played in the Mid-American Conference, the MAC, and had some gaudy statistics. I understand Rourke's perspective in saying that nobody wanted to draft him in the NFL draft coming out of university when he was with the Bobcats, but it's much different now. And he needs to continue his production this season, which is why he's focused on the field with his Lions. But if he even comes close to breaking Flutie's passing touchdown record and throws for even 5,000 yards, which now seems like it's going to be a lock, he'll still get an opportunity. There is a lack of high-end quarterback play in the NFL, and he's much better than a number of guys already on rosters in the NFL and more proven because a lot of those guys that are going to be even second and third stringers in the NFL are going to be fresh faces from college in the NCAA and have been there very long and haven't proven anything at the pro level. Now it's obviously a different game, but Rourke is going to get an opportunity and he needs to go and take it. People got to remember, even if he maxes out and wins the MLP award this year, he's making in and around 83 thousand dollars so people are going to be out there and you alluded to this i think both of you did that well is the cfl a better place for rourke 
it's not simply because of the financial aspect. If he goes to the NFL, there is a chance for him to make generational wealth if he can rise up the death chart. And in my mind, he has a better chance to do it because of that NCAA pedigree. Scouts and talent evaluators and coaches are going to go and say, look at these numbers that he put up at Ohio. And yeah, maybe he wasn't the most athletic guy coming out or the biggest quarterback from a physicality standpoint. He's not 6'6", 240. He's going to stand in the pocket and sling the rock all over the field and take a bunch of hits. But I think he's proven he can do that at his size, at least to this point in the season in the CFL. So I like the way that he's dealing with everything. Is it boring when you ask him questions, JC, at the podium after games at BC Place? Yes, but I think what we've seen is the real Rourke. And I've covered this kid for a long time since he was back at Oakville Trinity Catholic High School in Oakville. Holy Trinity, I should say, Catholic High School in Oakville. And he's been the same way. He's had the same mentality the entire way through. Went from there to Edgewood Academy, as you mentioned, in Alabama. Fort Scott finally got a scholarship offer and took advantage of it at Ohio. So this dude just puts his head down, goes to work. And if the NFL has been his goal for a long time, as he says, I can see that happening in the future because he's shown no matter what people think of him on the outside, he controls the narrative. And I would encourage a lot of other athletes, amateur, pro, or otherwise, to look at Rourke and understand that he's created all of this hype and praise around himself. And he's dealing with it in a great way. But you as the athlete control the narrative around you. And Rourke has done a great job with it. Well, and let's also talk about just the logistics, right? The Rourke is under contract for 2023 with the BC Lions. But is the last year of his rookie deal, which, as Dunk mentioned, tops out at around $80,000, right? And so if your choice is what Bolivar Mitchell's choice was, which is, well, I can stay in Canada, make half a million dollars Canadian with a big signing bonus that's friendly at tax time, or I can try the NFL, maybe end up on a practice roster and, and barely make six figures, that doesn't make any sense from a financial standpoint. For Nathan Work, it makes absolute sense from a financial standpoint to go down south because even on a practice roster he's going to make more money in the nfl than he does in the cfl oh and by the way if he goes down to the nfl and let's say doesn't have any success he flames out in 2023 2024 he's looking to come back to the cfl well at that point he is a true free agent and i can think of about nine teams that would probably love to <laughs> sign nathan work so this is not only a good logistical fit but it's a good financial fit for Nathan Rourke to take his shot that he is well-deserved. Um, I, I, I'm getting ready to cast my ballot, boys. Barring an epic collapse, Nathan Rourke is our MOP. I don't care what anybody else says. Uh, on, on that note, I mean, there's nothing stopping the BC Lions from waving a bunch of money for him to the future and say, look, we'll make you the highest paid quarterback in the CFL. But even then, you know, Zach Kolaros is making what? $550,000. The NFL minimum salary is 660 USD. So the amount of money he can make South of the border on a quarterback's contract is exponentially more than he can make 
even as the highest paid player in the CFL. I, I looked this up, guys, earlier in the week. I, I googled who are the lowest paid NFL quarterbacks, and I found the list. And on in that top five lowest uh, paid NFL quarterbacks is a guy named Danny Etling, who I completely forgot about because he was on the BC Lions practice roster, two guys behind Nathan Rourke on the depth chart, last season for three weeks and then they'd released him and he actually signed back with the Seattle Seahawks he's with the Green Bay Packers now he's got like a three-year contract worth 2.8 million dollars and he was not as good as Nathan Rourke right Rourke can go down and instantly cash in you know on on a contract that's worth way more than than he can make in the CFL. And I have complete faith in his ability, not just to stick around with a practice roster spot, to get on an active roster, because we've seen what he's been able to do. We've touched on his success in the high school level, at the JUCO level, at the college level with Ohio. But Rourke has improved since then. I don't think we talk about this enough. He was a a 58% completion percentage guy for the Ohio Bobcats. Arm strength was considered to be a weakness, as was accuracy, right? He was a system guy, everyone thought coming out. He has worked his absolute bug off every offseason. He took that pandemic year and put his nose to the grindstone with a guy named Rob Williams, a kinesiologist out here in, in Vancouver, and completely rebuilt the way he throws the football, changed his mechanics, and now the ball flies off his hand and he's so accurate with it he knows where to go instantly that's his work ethic and that won't stop if he signs an NFL contract this guy is on a mission he's got his head squarely on his shoulders his his vision's in the right place and he's heading on an upward trajectory still let's think about this for a second guys Chris Drevler has already made over a million dollars USD in the NFL and there's a lot of people that don't think He's a great passer, and that's probably putting it nicely. Rourke has way better passing statistics, better rushing statistics. So it stands to reason that Rourke is going to take a swing at that NFL money because the jackpot of generational wealth is there. It's not there to the same degree as it is in the CFL. You can still do well for yourself, and if you invest your money, like Bolivai Mitchell and I'm sure Michael Riley have done this smartly as well you probably don't have to work for the rest of your life if you don't want to or you can literally only do what you want to in terms of work but if you hit that jackpot in the nfl then oh my goodness it's out of this world and you can take care of a lot of people in your life if you want to so that's why rourke is going to go after this and at least he admitted it on air he's honest if nothing else and he said i've wanted this for a long time he grew up watching Brett Favre over the years with the Green Bay Packers has realized maybe he shouldn't turn the ball over as much as Favre did in his day. And he's done that this year with the BC Lions. So Rourke's going to take a shot. My advice to any fans listening to this podcast, go out and see the guy, whether he's on the road or you can get to Vancouver and see him at BC Place because he's not going to be in our league for very long. Yes, there's potential down the road to see him dressing or dare I see even potentially starting for an NFL team but go out and see him while he's in our country and there's lots of empty seats I think that could be scooped up that you could go out and see him because this dude is having one of the best seasons in CFL history and just for that reason alone you got to go out and watch the kid 
All right, boys, we got to move on or else we have to rename ourselves the Nathan Rourke Podcast. Let's go. <laughs> a group of fans at Percival Molson Stadium in Montreal used air horns throughout this past week's game against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, drawing the ire of fans watching on television. The Alouettes used the opportunity to troll people on Twitter during and after the game, even posting a tweet on Monday soliciting replies for feedback regarding the horns, but turning replies off on the tweet. What should be done about Montreal and their annoying air horns? Well, they probably should be taken away. I mean, it seems as if this actually violates the CFL's fan policy in terms of the level of noisemaker that you're allowed to bring into a stadium. But I didn't really mind the air horn. I didn't know what the fuss was about. I've heard this in Montreal games in the past. I don't think this is the first time that the air horn has been present and it wasn't really until it started making a bunch of noise on twitter that i clued into the fact that there was an annoying air horn yeah it was repetitive but i didn't mind it all that much even on the broadcast so uh i think there are some some people who are being a little bit overly sensitive about this issue around the league who found it irritating but if you're getting that much of an outcry from the fans, then some action does need to be taken. Like, let's just chill for a minute here, okay? Because <laughs> air horns have been going down, especially in Quebec, for a long time. Whether it's the Alouettes, the University of Montreal, or Laval University, those things are a staple. And I think it kind of adds to the game as well. And when you're a visitor and there's no noise, you really know you shut everybody up. So it's not annoying in my mind. Let's stop this useless chatter about it and just understand that it's part of the ambiance, I guess, let's say, or the crowd noise that you have to deal with when you go into play football in La Belle Provence. Well, I, I saw on Twitter the, this CFL document circulating about fan policy for attending games, and it did say that horns were not allowed. However, if you read the fine print, that document was produced for Touchdown Atlantic out east, which is the game that the CFL hosts. Every other game, to my knowledge, has local sets of rules that teams can choose to enforce. Some teams do not allow air horns. Some do. Some do not allow musical instruments. Some do, etc. Obviously, the folks out in Montreal love their air horns. The team loves them. My only suggestion would be, hey, TSN, microphones can be moved. You don't have to mic the spot with the happy air horn people. Find another place, and we can all win that way. Enjoy your horns, but yeah, you don't want to lose viewership on television. I get that. I saw the people on, on the TSN camera who were firing off the air horns, and I wondered to myself, do they know what a ruckus they're causing online? Are these because they they were so, a, an older couple? It appeared like were they even on Twitter? Did they know that they had unified the entire CFL fan base in <laughs> hatred against them? I wonder if they'll ever find out. Hall of Fame receiver Nick Lewis appeared on the Rod Peterson show last week and took a shot at Riders franchise quarterback Kogi Fajardo, saying, "Quote." I feel like Kogi's a really good leader. You see him communicate well with the guys and do those things, but his skill set is very limited. Close quote. Is Lewis's criticism fair, you guys? Who boy, it sure stirred the pot amongst people in Ryder Nation. And 
I'm not going to argue with Lewis, who is a Hall of Famer, has caught footballs from a lot of quarterbacks. And I think I'm trying to understand what he's saying in the sense of what we've seen from Fajardo. He's a really good short to intermediate passer. He has definitely been inconsistent down the field. And it's not like you've ever come away from, you know, other than maybe a handful of throws of his and saying, my goodness, he really looks like a gunslinger. And then from the standpoint of being a rusher with the football, he's solid and he can get out of things. He's got some nice escapability, but he's not super fast. So if that's what Lewis is saying, I kind of understand it. And we haven't necessarily seen Fajardo evolve. And there were a lot of people that felt like it wasn't going to be a match with Jason Moss and his offensive scheme that has been the best with guys like Henry Burris and Michael Riley, who could throw the football down the field with the best of them and obviously make every other throw on the field required. So I understand where Lewis is going with that. And I think he feels like the skill set is limited because we haven't necessarily seen Fajardo take it to the next level. Yeah, virtually all of Fajardo's success this season has come with underneath stuff, right? It's the quick hits for guys like he and Schaefer Baker, who makes a lot of his money with yards after the catch. You know, to me, I don't think there's any denying that the shine has come off of Cody Fajardo to a, to a quite a strong extent over the last 18 months, you know, coming out of the 2019 season, he was the West division's MOP candidate and he looked like the next best thing and all we've seen since then is regression some of it is beyond his control you know the knee injury is obviously limiting his ability to use his legs and Fajardo is certainly at his best when he uses his legs but this is also a guy who's not 23 years old Cody Fajardo is now in his 30s he's not going to be able to run around like a maniac for much longer one could already argue that his days of doing that are behind him and I don't think that he has shown the ability to stand into the pocket. And I'll ask you guys this. Back in 2019, if you'd said, hey, you have the option to start a franchise with any quarterback in the CFL, who are you picking? I know a lot of people would have taken Cody Fajardo. Today, the number one answer is obviously Nathan Rourke. After that, you're going to have people picking Zach Kolaris. You're going to have people picking Jake Mayer. You're going to have people still taking Boldy by Mitchell, the old tried and true. And I'm not sure if Cody Fajardo cracks the top five. One could argue he shouldn't even crack the top 10. So I fully understand where Nick Lewis is coming from. I'm not saying Fajardo is a bad quarterback, but what I'm saying is, you know, if you saw him as a tier one quarterback in 2019, a guy who could actually propel you to a championship, that's not what he looks like anymore. So far this season, he has looked like a middling quarterback, like a game manager who can, can win you some games, right, with, with proper support from his defense and special teams, but it's not going to get you over the hump on his own. Yeah, I, I think Lewis, Lewis in particular was a little bit harsh, especially from a guy who couldn't hack it as a CFL coach, only lasted one season in BC before he got fired with the rest of that staff, and he took a bunch of pot shots uh, at various players during his and and other CFL affiliated individuals during his appearance on the Rod Peterson show that I thought were a little bit inappropriate. But in this case, he's not the only person saying this, right? Wes Cates, the great riders running back, was on the Rod Peterson show 
on the same day and said virtually the same thing. He said, Kogi Fajardo is everything you want in a quarterback except for playing the position. And I, I agree with that. Like he's a tremendous leader. I think he's got a good personality. I like him with the media, but on the field, even in that 2019 season, I was one of those people who wouldn't have picked Kogi Fajardo to start my franchise with. I was, uh, I thought he was a bit of a flash in the pan, and I got razzed a little bit from this uh, for for that opinion by guys like our own Justin Dunk here. But <laughs> I, I just didn't see it as a long term thing. And and what we've seen over the last couple years is that Kogi Fajardo is a quarterback who can perform in the right system. And right now he's not in the right system with Jason Moss. He doesn't have the right situation around him. What the NFL has figured out that the CFL I don't think quite has is that if you don't have an elite quarterback, in in my mind, in a nine-team league, if you don't have a top three quarterback, you need to be looking for the next guy. You need to be looking to find a move to get yourself a top three quarterback. Right now, I don't think you can argue that Cody Fajardo, at least in this system, is a top three quarterback in the CFL. And so Saskatchewan, especially with his contract set to expire here, needs to be looking seriously in the mirror at whether, A, they're going to make a move to get somebody other than Fajardo as their starter, or are they going to move to an OC who can run a system that can maximize the skill set that he has? Because if you don't do one of those two things, I'm seriously doubting whether you can get back to that peak that you had in 2019. As much as I liked what Fajardo did in 2019, I always wondered how good was that season if some of the other top quarterbacks in the league were healthy. we got to remember that was the year Mitchell went down with a shoulder injury. Michael Riley was beat up. I believe Trevor Harris missed some time that season. Caleros was recovering from that hit that he took from Simone Lawrence and then all of a sudden (laughs) leads the Blue Bombers to a great cup in 2019. So there were a lot of quarterbacks that had been battered and bruised and were on the sideline that ultimately allowed Fajardo to lead the CFL in passing as much as I liked him. And a lot of that probably honestly was what Lewis and Cates talked about, his personality. He's great with the media. It seems like all the guys on the team love him. You know, JC and I were out there, touchdown Atlantic, and you can see just the energy that he brings to that team and that he gets from the guys when he's around them. So that standpoint, from my perspective, is clear. And, you know, I thought about this when Craig Dickinson called Nathan Rourke the best quarterback in the league and said we were really high on him in the draft. And I started wondering, not just Saskatchewan, but in that case, how did they pass up on taking Rourke? Because you always want to have better quarterbacks and competitive players on your team. And I mean, a bunch of the other CFL teams are certainly going to ask themselves that. And yes, it's easy to say now with the way that Rourke has started his first season as a full-time starter. But I think that needs to be put out there. And JC, you alluded to it. Fajardo's contract is expiring. And if you're the Rough Riders, do you want to look at some of the other quarterbacks around the league that might have intriguing potential? It doesn't seem like Jake Mayer is going to leave Calgary, but I'm sure if you gave him a massive offer, he might at least think about it. Now, there's probably not too many other guys, and I'm sure you guys 
I come up with a few that you like that you would necessarily go after. So if you're the riders, you might be, and I freaking hate cliches, but stuck between a rock and a hard place when this contract does come up. All right, BC Lions owner Amar Doman went on Sakaris and Price in Vancouver and ripped MLSC chairman Larry Tannenbaum for his comments criticizing the CFL's lack of growth, saying, quote, I think you've got to take responsibility for your fan base. You have to take responsibility for your lack of attendance. If that's your problem, fix it. Close quote. Oh, my goodness. The Argos have averaged 11,000 Fans, just over that number at BMO Field this season. That's what the team reports, at least. I think it's probably much less. It's down 12% from the 12,493 fans they averaged in 2019. What do you guys make of Doman's comments? Well, to me, Doman's comments sounded like strong leadership, right? And there's no way that Amar Doman would be making these comments publicly if these conversations were not already happening privately. I don't think that is how Amar Doman is wired. Amar Doman has put his money where his mouth is in promoting the BC Lions this year. Lions attendance is up 9% from 2019. Yes, a lot of that is due to the monster crowd of 34,000 they had at the season opener. But guess what? That still counts, right? Attendance is still down, I believe, across the league from 2019. It has plummeted in Edmonton. Again, Toronto's down 12%. Montreal is down 7%. Doman is the only one reversing that trend. He's injected life and intrigue into that team that it's been missing for a long time. Yes, part of that is the fact that the team is 6-1 and one with a, you know a strong MOP candidate under center. But to me... Larry Tannenbaum going into the media. He spoke to the Globe and Mail a couple months ago, taking pot shots at the CFL, a league that he's done nothing to support. I like this from Amar Dolman. This is what leadership looks like, in my opinion. And Larry Tannenbaum needs to hear these words. It's certainly going to lead to some awkward moments at the CFL governor's table, I'm sure. I, I bet Dolman's getting plenty of flack right now for Toronto, but I, I doubt he regrets what he said at all because this needed to be said publicly by somebody with authority in the CFL. Fans have talked about this for a long time, and quite frankly, people involved with the league have used kid gloves to talk about what MLSC has done with the Argonauts because, and perhaps rightfully so, they're afraid that they'll pull out and then there'll be a struggle struggle to find any sort of financially stable owner in Toronto. MLSC, for all their many, many flaws, is at least that, a financially stable owner. But they are not investing anything in the Argonauts. And I, I cannot speak on what the situation looks like on the ground in Toronto. Obviously, I don't live there uh Justin, you can probably speak on this a little bit better in a minute, but I know what Amar Doman has done in BC. And you see it with the uptick in attendance, which, yes, it hasn't been as good as that week one game, but it gets noticeably larger in my mind or noticeably more filled up in that lower bowl 
every single week and he's got activities outside the stadium and you can see advertising in the city you know flags on the lamp posts you know uh, billboards in the skytrain stations things that haven't always been the case with the lions when they weren't getting that investment he's injecting it into this team so that when you're in vancouver you see that the bc lions are a team in this city so often the Argos are completely forgotten by MLSC, despite the fact that they have an abundance of cash that they could throw around to market it and never lose a single dollar in profit because of how successful those other teams are in that city. They just simply haven't bothered to do any of that stuff. And to me, that's worthy of all that criticism. For the first part of the season in this summer, I've been in Toronto a decent amount of time and I've seen zero visibility of the Toronto Argonauts anywhere. And that's not to say that it doesn't exist, but I haven't seen it. And guys, you go into you know restaurants and bars and those type of establishments, especially in the younger areas like around Liberty Village, which is a quick walk over to BMO Field. And any of the sports on the TVs is either the Toronto Blue Jays or some other baseball game or golf or whatever else is on that night. And usually, if you want to get it on or if somebody wanted to have the Argos game on or another CFL game on, you'd have to ask to do it. So I'll quote my good friend Arash Madani and say they're just not on the radar in Toronto. And that's a large part to their own doing. So Doman's comments are pointed, but they're proper. I understand he feels like he might take some flack or JC, you think it might be awkward at the Board of Governors meetings, but you need to have those difficult conversations sometimes to get through to the other side and improve what's going on. So I think Doman has proven it. Hodge, you said it. He put his money where his mouth is, has the BC Lions visible in that space. And, you know, that biggest crowd of the season came during the first game of the season. We didn't know that Nathan Rourke was going to be this good or that the Lions were going to be a legitimately competitive team in the West Division that could potentially have great cup aspirations. Well, they have aspirations that could potentially get there, I should say. So he's done it. And the fact that he's also got the business background to feel confident in firing a shot in Mr. Tannenbaum, I like it. It's going to make Tannenbaum accountable because now – in some form or fashion, Tannenbaum is going to have to respond, right? Otherwise, the silence is going to speak volumes if Tannenbaum doesn't do anything, or MLSE as well doesn't do anything with marketing the Argos because it's just not there, guys. Like There are other events that go on at the Budweiser stage there, which is just across from BMO Field, like Drake on Saturday night. People are buzzing about it. The tickets are going up. I understand it's Drake, and it's not a fair comparison, but it's just saying that Right across the road, you have events going on. Ontario Place has a different festival in there, I feel like, every weekend of the summer. And you've got all these people walking past BMO Field, but it's difficult to get any of them in there for an Argos game. So you've got to make it cool. You've got to do what Doman has done. Make it easily accessible and a fun-looking event to go be a part of. Otherwise, the fans... And the amount of them in the seats is going to continue to plummet. And guys, it already looks poor. I know that's the reported number that we had there. That's just over 11,000. But it's so much less. We all see it on TV. That place looks empty and there's no energy in there. Yeah, and, and you touched on the accountability aspect, Dunk, which I think is key. The CFL ownership group is a small 
group, right? Is a small brethren. There are three community-owned teams, nine private, or pardon me, six private owners making up the nine squads. If the CFL is to be successful in the long term, and by long term, I'm talking about decades, not years. All nine owners need to be invested, and it is Amar Dolman's job after making a significant investment into his own team to hold others accountable. And I would hope that there are seven other owners outside of Amar Dolman who are also holding Larry Tonnenbaum and MLSC accountable for their blatant neglect of the Argonauts. Alouette's head coach and general manager Danny Machocha spoke to the media and called the team's undisciplined penalties extremely irritating. That said, he also said, and I quote, I think we're getting to the tail end of it, close quote. He also indicated that he is not ready to release a player or players for taking undisciplined penalties. What are your thoughts on the Alouette's penalty woes? Well, if he's not going to hold players accountable for releasing it by releasing them, I, I think this general manager needs to fire the head coach. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, what? They're the same guy? No. Like Danny Machocha at this point has lost a tremendous amount of credibility for his comments on this subject of discipline. The raw numbers are pretty astounding. Kahari Jones, who was allegedly so in, undisciplined that he had to be fired after a 1-3 start to the season, which, quite frankly, was a, a missed uh, gimme field goal away from being 2-2 two and two and tied for first place in the East Division at that stage. So bad when he was 31 penalties for 275 yards that he had to be fired. Since Danny Machocha took over, they have the same record. They are also 1-3, in three, and they have committed 37 penalties for 442 yards. That is an absolutely insane number when placed side by side. And it's remarkable to me that Danny Machocha has the gall to play up Kahari Jones' uh, discipline issues when he was firing him as a justification and then dismiss his own when they are so starkly worse. Of course he's going to do that. He's trying to save his job. And I think this is one major error that Machocha, who is normally a very calculated man, did not add up correctly. He has put himself very quickly, more quickly than I'm sure he would have liked to, in the firing line, and that's only if Gary Stern gets figured out what's actually going on with his team. That's still to be determined. But if Mr. Stern actually does some work and digs in and understands what's going on there, he's going to see that Machocha is not respected by the players in the locker room. We've talked about it a bunch of times, but that sound-up of the first game when he came down from the general manager's booth and is, quote, the interim head coach, which we all know was coming from a mile away. There was no energy in there. You could hear a pin drop. The players are not excited to play for him. And that's coming from players on the roster right now. So Machocha has made a terrible miscalculation in his tenure. If he doesn't get things turned around in a major way, is going to end much quicker in Montreal than he ever, ever envisioned because of bogus stuff like this. Saying Kahari Jones was an undisciplined person and an undisciplined coach, and that that translated over onto the field, and then now doing a complete 180, 
It's bogus. It's not fair to Jones, which is why I felt like Jones's comments were warranted. He needed to fire back at Machocha. And Machocha is sitting here saying, well, I'm not going to cut these players because of them being undisciplined. Well, then who else should be the next to go? It's going to be Machocha at some point in time, as I said, unless something changes in a major way. Well, and can we talk about the narrative here? Like, like, like we talked about Nathan Rourke taking control of his own narrative. If Danny Machocha didn't want to have scrutiny about the penalties that his team is taking, all he had to do in that press conference when discussing the firing of Kahari Jones, all he had to do was say, look, we're one in three. That's not good enough. I'm here to try and make our record better. At least then people would only be scrutinizing the record that he's put forth, which so far is even with Gahari Jones. It won't be after they lose to Winnipeg this week, but at least it would be <laughs> even right now. The moment that exactly he took the shot at Gahari Jones about the discipline issue, all of a sudden he created that narrative because if in his own mind, the discipline with his team was not good enough before Kahari Jones was fired, then it obviously has to be even worse afterwards, right? And I know that there are issues with discipline that don't always manifest on the field, right? The, what you know, Discipline issues aren't necessarily just penalties. It's possible that Machocha was talking about other issues in and around the team that have not yet been reported. But that said, obviously the discipline, if it wasn't good enough under Jones, is not nearly good enough under Machocha. And I agree, Dunk. I think this was a miscalculation for Danny Machocha. And I think that exactly his his because at the end of the day, if he wanted to be the head coach, he could have just waited to the end of the season. If they don't go to the playoffs, you blame Kahari, you take the job or you blame Kahari and you hire the head coach you really wanted to all along. This was a miscalculation and it's not good. It's, I feel like it's going to get worse before it gets better. Is Let's also let's also talk about that. The quote, I think we're getting to the tail end of it. Why? You, you've done. You've illustrated in exactly no way how your team's penalty issues are getting better. Is there fairy dust in the locker room? How, how, <laughs> you're not cutting players, and you're not talking about how the penalty issues are going to get better. I would love to know how they're going to get better, and I'm going to be watching it like a hawk on Thursday night from my spot in the press box at IG Field. Yeah, I, to touch on your point from earlier, Dunk, about Machocha not having a tremendous amount of respect in that locker room. I, Machocha was a tremendous coach at the U sports level. Now he has a great cup from his time at Edmonton, which ended rather poorly. I would say if you ask anyone who's an Elks fan, they don't have a tremendous amount of good things to say about Machocha, despite the fact that he had a championship ring there. But, at the youth sports level, he was tremendously successful with the Université de Montréal Carabin, right? One of the few coaches to be able to win, or the only coach, I believe, as a head coach to win a Vanier and to win a Grey Cup. But it's different to coach pro athletes than it is to coach kids, right? University students are kids. They still hold their coaches in a large part in, in high esteem, right? They're untouchable figures. They're, you know, father figures to a lot of them. That's not the same in a pro locker room, especially when you're coming in and pushing out a very popular guy in Kahari Jones. And 
that locker room is somewhat divided because Machocha, as the GM, has brought in so many of his former players from his time in Montreal and so many local guys that he knows well. But the rest of that locker room, I don't think, is buying whatever he's selling because he's still got sort of that college mentality, which doesn't play well with grown men. The Blue Bombers are just the fourth team since the inception of the CFL in 1958 to start a season 9-0. and Hodge, you live in Winnipeg and follow the team closely. Is an undefeated season possible? No. No, it's not. People need to stop talking about this. There is a 0% chance that the Winnipeg Blue Bombers will finish the season 18-0. And that is not for one second me trying to disrespect this team that has lived up to the challenge of all nine games so far this season. And again, I don't see any any way in which they lose the matchup on Thursday with the Montreal Watts. I think they're going to go to 10-0 and for just the second time in franchise history. But at the end of the day, right, this league is a marathon, not a sprint. And when this team clinches the West Division, which I think will happen sooner rather than later, it's inevitable that they're going to rest players and play against teams who are still in the playoff hunt. So even if this team doesn't lose a game straight up, and by that I mean, you know, ones on ones, inevitably at some point they're going to put in a bunch of twos and they're going to lose to someone who's playing for their lives with their ones. So I'm not disrespecting this team. They've been the best outfit in the CFL so far this season. Their win in Vancouver on a short week, I think is one of the most impressive victories I've seen in the CFL in a number of years. And and they played damn near perfect football at McMahon Stadium in Calgary. They've also played a couple of ugly games, notably the seven completion game from Zach Kolaris at Edmonton. Week one, I thought they got outplayed by Ottawa, but that doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is how many wins you have. They're perfect so far. I think they're going to stay perfect this week, but they're not going to stay perfect this season. Come on, man. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put the percentage chance at zero quite like you, Hodge. I, I think it's low, but not entirely impossible. But statistics are there's going to be a loss at some point. And quite frankly, this is a team that should have losses already under their belt as much praise as the Winnipeg Blue Bombers deserve for being able to win under any circumstances they've gotten lucky a couple times and or they've faced a bad opponent and played down to their level I mean you you even look at that Toronto Argonauts game where they essentially won the game on a shanked extra point right that that's not the an indicator of an 18 and 0 team in my mind uh, at, at a certain point, some of these errors that they have been guilty of committing are going to bite them in just the right way, and it's going to end up with one in the loss column. And that's okay, because this is still a very, very good football team. They should still be considered the Grey Cup favorites, but 18-0 and 0 is... Uh, it's a fairy tale. It's something you tell football players just so they have something to aspire to. It's not reality. But boys, what if the Canadian Mafia, Mike O'Shea, Kyle Walters, Wade Miller are sitting around the table and going, you know what? We have a chance to make history. And we know when we lock up the West Division, we're going to get a bye to that West Final. Fellas. There's a chance here, Hodge. There is not 
zero chance. There is at least a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. Yes, there is, because this team, I believe, is that good of a football team. All right. They find ways to win. JC, it ain't luck. That's manufactured goodness right there from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. <laughs> Led by Mike O'Shea, all right? You two party poopers need to take your sorry-ass losing attitudes elsewhere and just revel in the greatness that is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers because I believe it is possible, and there are egos in this league, and that's why I'm saying I'm not necessarily looking at O'Shea with this, but you don't think Wade Miller would like to walk into these Board of Governors meetings being the only president in CFL history to go 18-0, and stack two more wins on that, and win a Grey Cup. Like, this is the stuff of legend. And, oh, by the way, they're going for a third straight Grey Cup. So I think this is a talking point as long as they keep winning because, yes, they're likely going to wrap up the West Division early, but it might not necessarily be as early as we think because we got to remember the BC Lions – are six and one, and yes, they're going to play each other. What one more time as a boys? Uh, well, they play each other two more times, but it's at the very end of Winnipeg season. Winnipeg plays BC week nineteen, has a bye week twenty, and then plays BC again week twenty one. So, in theory, if the BC Lions basically run the table from here and go into the end of the year, at what would that be? Fourteen and one, they could technically. They could technically leapfrog the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, even if Winnipeg was 16-0 at that point, which is wild because someone's going to win the East at like 8-10. and 10. <laughs> That would be amazing. That would be epic. The CFL needs that, fellas. I think it would be 15-1 for BC by that point, right, Hodge? 16-0 for Winnipeg. Oh, fair play the last two games of the regular season. So that's what I'm saying. If you get to that point in the season – Let's say, play it out hypothetically, obviously, the Blue Bombers win that game, go to 17-0, and and you know you got to buy the next week, and BC is going to have that second spot home and cooled out anyways. Do you not want to go for the win? Like, let's actually look at the schedule. So, Hodge, I will re-ask you. I will give you an opportunity here to come off your 0% so you don't look like a fool down the road when it happens, if it happens, I should say. Do you want to reevaluate your 0% chance of an undefeated season for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it a 0.1% chance. Um, oh, he's on the, the board. Same, this, the, same, the same way that I, I still, despite having a, a lovely, lovely wife who is the love of my life, I still technically have a chance of marrying Kate Upton. Still technically. <laughs> technically. <laughs> technically. Dark. <laughs> Kate Upton is way Doug, past I, her 15 I, minutes of prime, and she's married to Justin Verlander. Why wouldn't you pick somebody else? She was honestly just the first person who came to mind. Okay. Dunk, I dare you to get in a room with Mike O'Shea and ask him if he cares that the team could go 18 and I will. I I've just asked him about wearing flip-flops I, 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 and socks before, so I have no issue asking him anything. I, 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 I want to see that interaction. Just the daggers coming out of his eyes would be remarkable. <laughs> no, I mean, we're both University of Guelph alums, so he would give me some answer. And then afterwards, he would chirp me about it when he's off the podium. That's exactly what would happen. But I have no problem asking him. I will say one thing. JC, you said they were a missed convert away from I think it was losing to the Argos that convert Tied. would have yeah that convert would have sent the game to overtime so I think that's worth remembering but you're you're absolutely right they arguably got outplayed 
by the Argos in front of 18 people at BMO Field. It's now time <laughs> for Hodges' heritage moment. On this day in 2019, Jim Hobson was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in the Builders category. Saskatchewan Rough Riders underwent a period of unprecedented success during Hobson's tenure as president and CEO from 2005 to 2015, posting record profits while capturing two Grey Cups in 2007 and one at home in 2013. The Regina native played for the team for four seasons from 1973 to 1976 before entering a 30-year career in education. Where would the Riders be today without Jim Hobson? They certainly wouldn't be the crown jewel of the CFL that we see them as today. I mean, for much of its history, as passionate as the fan base in Saskatchewan always has been, this is a team that was known for mediocrity off the, on the field and telethons to save their franchise off of it. Jim Hobson changed that narrative with the way he ran that franchise, you know, made them the financial powerhouse of the CFL and one of the best teams on the field in that era, winning two great cups. Uh, the Riders owe an awful lot to him as an individual. Well said, JC. I got nothing to add, but that's exactly it. And actually, the only thing I will add is the CFL could still listen to him today. I think Hobson has had some great ideas. He's somewhat of a regular on the Rod Peterson show and shares his views on various league hop topics. And it would be smart to listen to him. The three-minute drill. Let's keep it moving, boys. The Montreal Alouettes have moved Vernon Adams Jr. to the six-game injured list. Will we ever see him play another game with the Els? I think we will, but in a backup role. The Ottawa Red Blacks debuted new helmets this week, paying homage to the old Rough Rider days. Do you like the new look? I thought the helmets were fantastic but they don't match the current jerseys. If you're going to go with the retro throwback look, you got to go all in and complete the whole outfit. Canadian receiver Nikhil Harry suffered a high ankle sprain with the Chicago Bears and could be out for the next six weeks. How big of a blow is that to him? All right, he's a bust. Let's move on. The Riders have brought back <laughs> linebacker Jordan Herdman-Reed. Is that a smart move? Hey, he's from Winnipeg, so signing him can only be a good move. The Dallas Cowboys <laughs> signed Brett Maher to compete with Canadian Liram Hirolahu in training camp. Which former CFL kicker will win the job? Mm, my my head says that, or my gut says it will be Hirolahu because I think he's the better player. My head says they wouldn't have brought in Maher if they were convinced that Hirolahu was the guy and he's got history there in Dallas. So that's the answer that I'll go with. The Edmonton Elks moved Canadian quarterback Trey Ford to the six-game injured list this week. When will we see him back in the lineup? That's going to be hard to say. He's dealing with a shoulder issue to, I believe it is, his throwing shoulder. So they're going to take it slow with him. And if you look at the Elks record and the way they're playing football right now, especially against the BC Lions, there is no rush at all. Let the kid heal up. Calgary Stampeders boundary quarterback Trey Roberson will miss the rest of the season, regular season that is, after requiring surgery on his knee. How badly will the Stamps miss him? I think the Stamps will really miss him. Yes, they do have a solid group of defensive backs, 
around that unit, even so much that they released Raheem Wilson. But there's no question that Roberson was the best of the bunch. Nick Lewis called Toronto Argonauts kicker Boris Beattie mentally weak on the Rod Peterson show. Is that a fair comment? No, it's completely off base. There's plenty to criticize Boris Beattie for, uh, but this was a low shot uh, by a guy who's clearly got issues from a bad season that happened six years ago at this point. So uh, I don't put much stock into what Nick Lewis had to say there. Four-time All-Star Greg Ellingson is set to return from a hip injury this week against the Montreal Alouettes. Will he help spark Winnipeg's offense? Definitely. We saw how dynamic he was with the Zach Calaris to start the season. He'll be a welcome addition, although Dalton Schoen has been unbelievable as a rookie. CFL sack leader Pete Robertson is back practicing with the Riders this week. Is that a big deal? I mean, he's still he's still leading the CFL in sacks despite missing the last three games. So, absolutely, the Riders need to win games with that front seven, with the turnovers and the sacks and the field position they generate. It's a big deal. That's it. That does it for this edition of the Three Down Nation podcast. Make sure you tune in next week for more Kate Upton talk and straightening you guys out about the Blue Bombers going undefeated. We'll see if that chance number goes up with Mr. Hodge. Catch you all later. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.